It has been quite some time since you and I had an episode by ourselves. I know that the last series I did by myself was like a three-parter about uh, a lesbian couple inviting... (laughs) Like a a nuclear family into their house. Uh, A a father, a wife, and two kids. A young girl and a young boy. And the young girl, like, goes missing. Like, in in the weird basement. And this lesbian couple, like, just moved in. So they're not too acquainted with anything. And then, like... As the days transition because of a bad storm outside. And they awkwardly let the family stay with them. Um, the partner goes missing, looking for the girl, and then the main girl is convinced that the family had lived there the entire time, and that she was, like, insane, that she was crazy, she was supposed to be, like, committed or something, and it was just, it was a little all over the place. It was a little, it was a little crazy. It was, it was psychological. It was like some Shutter Island shit. And I wasn't, I wasn't disappointed with it. I just wish at the end of the day that I was able to make a more finite decision or, or some type of opinion, anything subjective to take away from how, I guess, like, just confusing some of those plot threads are. And I know that, like, you can blame a lot of uh, my judgment on being relatively impaired, because I always am. Uh, But also, who isn't? And fuck you. Yeah, that story was okay. That story was alright. And uh, I wanted to do something different. Uh, we're de- this is going to be a short one. This is going to be a quick one. I can already tell. And uh, this one was a, a recommendation from a listener, old, old Danny boy. And um, I don't know what necessarily brought me to this episode. Um, this story has been on my radar for a couple years now. It's definitely been logged in the library and just kind of sat there for a little while. I initially wanted to read it with Gestalt, something about the title, uh, you know, it, it, it drew fascination to him. And I think the idea of just something kind of banal and and normal being juxtaposed to be terrifying is something great authors do. Like Stephen King, you know, the the way he 
makes a storm drain terrifying. Um, there is definitely something interesting, and even though I don't uh, talk to Gestalt anymore, and we, we aren't necessarily friends anymore, I don't really, I don't usually get into the drama of specifically who on this show I do or don't talk to anymore. I guess I kind of, like, it's episode 240. I guess I can be a little bit honest with you guys. Um, I don't necessarily record with Sir Booberry anymore because he went through some personal stuff, and at the end of it, he asked me to delete like all of his episodes and I like apologized to him and said like no like I'm not gonna delete something I put work into despite the fact that he now regrets doing it uh, for whatever reason you know it, it's a personal thing but he asked me I declined it created an awkward situation for a little while, but we are civil with one another. We still hang out from time to time. Um, he's just declined coming back to the show. Um, despite how promising his last episode was, I really, I really genuinely thought he enjoyed the last episode he was on. Uh, again, no hard feelings towards this person. Um, in my life, I still care about him greatly. It's just, I don't think he's coming back to the show. He he has made no indication that he wants to come back. And I'm, if you haven't realized people, I'm not going to force anyone to become a byproduct of this podcast. Like, our lives come first, as I made evident with my recent hiatus due to a lot of personal stuff going on in my life. But, you know, we always find our way back, and it's always who is able at the time I'm able, and the stars just align in the way they do. And when they don't, things just slip away, and people change, and again, there's no personal feelings there. Um, it's just I don't, I don't think he's going to come back. Um, I've been trying to get Space Cowboy on an episode for a while. I've been trying to get... JJ the Jet Plane on an episode for a while. I've been trying to get Lanky Lucifer on an episode. Um, but they all are doing different things with their lives right now. And, you know, some of them live across the country and don't have, you know, a recording studio. So, like, I can't, I can't necessarily argue any of their situations. It's just I don't know if they'll ever be back. And if they were to want to do it, I'd have to kind of do a litmus test to make sure their heart was in the right place because above all I'm not doing this for people to show off I'm not doing this for individual people's benefits like this is a group activity this is entertainment this is meant to be fun for everyone like if if you're not gonna bring your best to it and it's just like an excuse to hang out with me <laughs> you know there's a million other things we could be doing um who, so now, now I guess I will, I will sip some tea, if you will, and broach probably the two situations that have upset me the most in the last couple years. Um, and I'll, and I'll try to be as liberal about it as I possibly can. Um, 
because these these next two people I really don't have a relationship with anymore and don't really ever want to ever again and it's because of how things were left between us um the first was a uh, a big fight I had with uh Disco Dracula and I'm not going to play his music out of lack of respect but there was you could listen so like go back and listen to all, his, all of his episodes in order right and go back like even I'm doing it right now and you can kind of see how he starts out as like a main person on this show someone that I wanted to do this show with till the end of time and he goes from being on like every 10 episodes to being like on every 30 then like a 60 episode hiatus and then he just disappears and that's because he like <laughs> I'm gonna say it as liberally as I can he he hardcore simped for his e-girlfriend and that's fine you know a lot of guys who maybe don't have as much luck in the female department do kind of fall off that bridge um, when they're given any type of attention um, that they can't get from their friends and family. And that's kind of the, the, the toxic part about it is that um, I considered him like a brother. I considered him one of my best friends, one of my closest friends. We confided like everything in each other. And he, he got really petty about, uh, his relationship moving to the next step with this girl. And I kind of got petty about him never hanging out anymore and never wanting to do anything and always being, you know, <laughs> just always simping for his girlfriend. And this is not something new. This is something he used to do in high school. This is something he's burned many bridges with many other friends about. And I try not to take it personally. And it just, it just hurts, you know, going back and listening to these episodes and listening to the person he was and the friendship we had, you know, again, I'm going to, going to sip some tea and just say that, um, people who can't manage, um, multiple relationships with multiple different people at the same time don't deserve to have those relationships. So when he got to that bridge, he decided I'm going to hold on to my family. I'm going to hold on to my girlfriend and all my friends can go wayside. And I unfortunately was one of those friends that could go wayside because I pointed it out to him. I said, you never see anyone anymore. You're always up your girlfriend's ass. Um, everyone misses you. They wonder how you're doing. And, you know, you never respond to anything. You never come to anything anymore. And we haven't recorded in ages. And, and you know, he kind of let slip that he just doesn't care to see anyone or record or do anything. And it's, you know, it is what it is. Uh, he, he made his decision. He's happily married now, if you can... Um, imagine how quick that was over the course of this podcast but uh you know he's he's doing his own thing and again we have a civil relationship and I, I don't give a fuck if he listens to this or if anyone else listens to this and tells him about it I really don't give a shit um but he he hurt me 
very deeply, and that's not something that I can forgive. So you will not see him on the podcast. Um, we're approaching our, like, I don't know, fucking, like, eighth or ninth year of doing this shit. Like, I'm just letting it all hang out at this point. You Take it or leave it. So. And then, um, last year... I was, uh, I was talking with Gestalt. I was hanging out with Gestalt. I was helping him with one of his personal projects. So Gestalt is a very creative man. He's a very interesting man. He doesn't have a ton of friends. He doesn't have a ton of outlets. You know, he was like homeschooled. He lives in his fucking mom's basement. Like it's just his, his life has been very cloistered. And he comes from a religious background and he just, his priorities are kind of all over the place and it's hard to see him and it's hard to get his attention. And he has admitted time and time again that things just don't work out sometimes. And he never takes any personal responsibility over why things don't work out, but they just kind of fade away. And, um, I was one of like the last friends who had like been through all of this deep and heartfelt shit with him and in his personal life dealing with his own relationships and when things were really at their worst he probably only had like two people by his side and I was one of them uh, other than his his family and um I always felt like he was like my little brother like like I took him under my wing when we were in high school I led him th through a lot of different friend groups and a lot of different social situations that he was very anxious and kind of, um, distanced from, and I kind of pat myself on the back now for like trying, you know, as people do to get other people out of their shells and to get them to exist within a social strata. But, uh, some shit just ain't meant to happen. And, uh, we had continuously tried working on personal projects with one another and I always asked him to like act in my shit and he always did it with such a plomb and such talent that I always appreciated it. And you know, I always compensated him. Um, I always bought him dinner or something. And, um, whenever it came down to working on his stuff with him, he always wanted to talk about like money and he always wanted to talk about time and, and like compensating me for, for my talents and shit but without really giving me any credit. That's kind of where the problem came from, is that he he owned these products, but I was helping him every step of the way, and he did not want to give nearly any credit to me, even after all of this work of mine had been done, both, you know, literal work and figurative work, where I had helped kind of mend his craft a little bit and helped him with dialogue or writing or visualizing, you know, um, shots and, and camera work and shit. And like really putting in <laughs> hundreds of hours into, into these projects just to watch them kind of fizzle and die. And, uh, in, in high school, there was a big project in college, there was a big project. And then recently there was a big project and, and none of them have come to fruition. And it's not because of me, you know, like, look at the podcast, like, I look at our Let's Play channel, like, when I commit to something, I do it. And when I commit to people, I am loyal, you know, I am...
consistent. So in, in my care, I'm consistent. So when it comes to what happened, he actually like we, we had a bit of a spat again and he he said some things he didn't mean. And I said some things I didn't mean. And you could just tell when people are just being mean to one another. Um, can you believe it, people? He called me a diva. I want to put in like a drum, like, but I'm, but like, I don't know. It's not the first time in my life I've been called that by someone who I would like to think knows better about how selfless I've been during so many processes that we've shared. So it, it definitely rubbed me the wrong way. And, and it ended with him telling me that, uh, my input in in both his life and his projects was no longer worth his time, and that was that was frankly just a huge fucking slap in the face. So, um, again, not really talking to Gestalt anymore. Um, he's kind of moved in his own direction, um, doing his own stuff, and I am happily just like with the disco dracula situation i am happily distanced um from that and i suppose the only reason i'm bringing it up now is because i feel like uh with with episode 240 moving towards 250 with all the great stuff i have planned around the corner with this fucking show i'm i'm going back and i'm listening to all the episodes and i'm rewatching all the let's plays on the on the podcast and on the youtube and i'm i'm reminiscing this is this is a time of i want to say like the the flashback of the show uh, my own personal flashback of the show with with the time i took to, during my hiatus I kind of wanted to bring the show back to, like, what it originally was, I would say somewhere around, like, the 60s to the 100s, where it was just good reading quality, a little bit less quippy, and just solid material, and I'm always on the lookout for, for more people who could bring that to the, to the field that are in my area, and, you know, there are more people that are going to be coming onto the show in between 250 and 300, uh, the next quote-unquote season that I'm already planning. Um, but, you know, it's one step at a time. That's that's life. It's one step at a time, and it's, you know, measuring the worth in certain things, both in relationships, in tasks at hand, in your workload. Like, you gotta take things with grace, and recently just just listening back over some of these episodes man i just really i went to a to a really clear and just like kind of confident and happy place and i don't regret sharing any of this product with any of the people i have and i don't regret any of the episodes with the people i no longer communicate with or, or relate to anymore, but there's a, there's a kind of emptiness there that the product, you know, the podcast will always be kind of affected by. Um, and I'm just, I'm, I guess I'm mentally acknowledging it here at like one o'clock in the morning on like a fucking Tuesday. 
And what I mean by taking this product back to the beginning and re-listening to some of the older episodes, there's just, there's so many people that are still here and are still on the boat that I just, I genuinely want to thank for their long (laughs) fucking strenuous commitment (laughs) and consistency to the show. And there, there may be three people I need to thank like more than anything and it's not dirt in anyone else's eye. It's just these three people have gone above and beyond in my life recently to really help me on an emotional and mental capacity. And um, I want to I want to start by thanking my best friend, Franz McBoohoo. Um, he's constantly reaching out to me, even from states away. And the, you know, the love is felt and the love is reciprocated and he'll, he'll always be my best friend. There's literally nothing that could tear us apart. And we've, we've been going strong the last, I want to say like 13 years. (laughs) So I really can't get rid of him at this point. He will always be a part of the show. I even bought him a microphone so he can record from Boston. Um, even though we're going to still try to do some live stuff and that's, that's a wink, wink, nod, nod to uh, incoming content. Um, I won't say soon, but happening uh, this season. And um, the next person I would probably want to thank, just like in order of longevity, is Django Phillips. Um, what I will say about Django is that we did not start off as the strongest of friends. We were relatively competitive with one another, um, sometimes combative with one another, you know, dialogue wise. And our friendship was always kind of this tenuous thing where it, it would come and go, it would fade in and fade out. But we always had, I would say great times with one another and a lot of memories with one another. And ever since I started the show, he has consistently made himself available and has constantly, constantly brought his best foot forward. And I really cannot thank him enough. And when it comes to his support and when it comes to his talent and when it comes to just being included in his life, I, I am so fucking thankful and I am and I am thankful to call him a close friend and I'm thankful to have him in my life and have him be a part of this um, a part of this podcast. Um, the next person I want to thank is someone who has really been looking out for me over the last couple of years, I would say, and I've also been looking out for him and we've been taking care of one another, um, I would say, in our our lower or lowest of times recently. And that's uh, where am I? And, um, he is just one of those friends who will almost, I want to say like almost always be there for you. And like, it's not without trying. Like sometimes a Saturday is just not good for him because he works and lives like two hours away, but he is constantly reaching out to me. He is constantly asking to be on the show. He is constantly asking 
to move this product forward, to take this to new places, to do new things with it, and constantly get himself on more episodes and do more things with it. And that's why I keep giving him more and more series and more and more longer episodes, and that's just because he is always gung-ho about doing this. And when I feel sometimes that I'm, like, alone in the passion that needs this to thrive, he comes out of nowhere like a fucking bright, vibrant sun and brings so much fucking energy, so much needed energy uh, to this program. And I hope people can acknowledge that because even people like Frowns and even people like Django, like they just don't have all the time in the world and sometimes the attitude just isn't there, and sometimes you can just tell by a recording or by an episode that they were just tired and were just trying to get through it to get something to post. But, like, even when Where Am I is tired, he fucking bounces through that shit, and he's constantly bringing his A-game and always smoking with me. <laughs> he never denies to toke right before a session and that's also something I can appreciate because not everyone smokes and not everyone smokes anymore so it definitely brings some color to the show um given given some other relative shout outs to just people who have been really great lately in my life um I want to give a shout out to Mr. Skellybones for recording the Dead Space series with me and for just hashing a lot of shit out because he, he was also a very close friend with Disco Dracula who had been spurned, you know, multiple fucking times from trying to be friends with the guy. And we got closer because of it, because we both had been through it and it was palpable <laughs> and we are all the closer now because of it. And I guess we found something in each other that we had found with him and now and now we get that experience when we hang out with one another and it's it's just always a good time with Mr. Skellybones. We 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 were watching like all the Junji Ito anime together. Um we were watching tons of movies and playing games together and it's just it was just a good time and you guys will be able to see that on the incoming Dead Space 2 uh playthrough if it's not out already it's coming out. And um, we also recorded Dead Space 3, like, right after that shit. So Dead Space 3, I think, is going to be coming out in the winter when we are not recording the podcast. So that I'll have time to edit more stuff for the YouTube. Um, the next person I want to thank is uh, Cannibal Siren, who I have been working a lot with on the next incoming episodes. She has a four-part series starting next week. Um, it is a fantastic little series. She constantly brings her A-game, despite living two hours away from me, you know, always uploading her stuff, always putting her best foot forward, and just following instructions and being constructive and you know just the sweetest person in the world we'll we'll have to record something together sometime soon um but that that you know that's that's going to be up to our mutual schedules um i just wanted to say that she is just 
such a huge like light in my life whenever we talk to one another it's all smiles uh, we just miss each other and it, the energy is always there and the feelings are always there and she's just someone I know I'm going to continue to drag <laughs> by my side for the rest of my life um I hope you guys are excited for that series because it's fucking amazing um the, the last two people I want to just give brief mention to are just people who have um, been going through their own stuff and still had time for the show this this year and still, you know, wanted to do this and be a part of this. And despite a lot of shit going on in their lives, they made this happen. And um, that's Tenron Otrin and Glitch Blob. Um, the two of them have admittedly gone through a lot this year without getting um, too much into it. And um, they were still down to reconnect on the show and make some content. And I just, I really appreciate it. And the people who make this program feel like less work are the people I constantly want to give shout-outs to, to, to let them know that their impact in my life and both on the show is felt. So that's, that's me gushing for a little bit, just to get that out there. Not to say I don't appreciate anyone else who's been on this season uh, looking at uh, Mark Rooster, Deputy Dewey, Sofa King, fucking Terry the Tickler, you know. Anyone I've been talking to about recording or has come forward to record, I appreciate everyone who is a part of this product and continues to bring life to it and continues to keep it going. Um, this, this podcast would not be possible without these people and without you listeners. So I like to sprinkle in my thanks every once in a while because I'm probably not going to be able to do it at the end of this season. You will see why when we get there. Um, but I have some cool stuff planned for the next several episodes and I really hope everyone's excited for it. And I just want to jump into a quick story by myself in this solo episode to kind of... Um, bring home my catharsis um, to, to kind of keep this thing going and putting my best foot forward and pushing, pushing this boulder up the hill as I do. Um, so today, from, from my choice recommendation uh, from Danny Boy, um, I'm going to read a story that is titled The Side Tunnel. Uh, this is from Creepypasta. Um, I want to say it was recommended to me by Danny, like, fucking pre-pandemic, like, four years ago. <laughs> I hated that town. Sprawled across the rotting foothills of a dead mountain chain, the city was a mass of Old South racism and corruption, filled with inhabitants too poor or too sentimental to leave for some place better. The city sweltered in the midsummer heat 
smog from traffic mixing with lethal amounts of pollen and dust to form a soup that killed asthmatics as effectively a whiff of mustard gas. I had acquired a sum of money from a job a few months back, and my needs were modest, so I had nothing better to do than hang out at the fountain downtown or at the coffee shop nearby. I met Charlie first, when I noticed some truly phenomenal photographs on his laptop. They were all of beautiful, decayed structures, some of which I had seen around town. Charlie never made eye contact, as he explained, in his mild, halting speech that he didn't take the photos, those were Jack's, but he handled setting up Jack's website. A few evenings later, I was sitting on the floor of Jack's tiny apartment drinking beer and talking with a small group of kids that were most excited by abandoned and condemned buildings, fire hazards, and other signs of urban decay. They called themselves Urbexers, or Urban Explorers. The leader of the group, Jack, was passionate about his photography and was working his art into his college thesis. Jack was tall, with a surfer's build that could have landed him a contract to model for Abercrombie and Fitch, if it weren't for his shock of unruly blonde hair. Jack's girlfriend, Annie, at first, seemed to perform no function aside from looking very good and hanging on to Jack. I asked Charlie about her once, and he said that Annie was a very good listener, which is what Jack seemed to want. Shane was huge. He topped 400 pounds, standing well over 6 feet tall, with thick slabs of muscle overlaid by thicker slabs of fat. He was from some no-name community in the forested hills of middle Alabama, and he dressed as if he was prepping for a deer hunt. For all of his size and massive presence, he was calm and very quiet, perhaps in response to Jack's constant diatribe about the architectural methodologies of whatever. The last member of the group was Petya. She was a transplant from some formerly Soviet bloc country, uprooted from all that she knew and rudely shoved into the semi-rural Alabama soil, watered a bit and told to deal with it. Lucky for her, Petya was tough as a weed and thrived. She was short and hard, hard, looking more like a 13-year-old boy than a 19-year-old woman. She had discovered country music early after her move and took to it with a passion that verged on neurotic, to a point that her speech was a heavy southern drawl punctuated with weird Slavic inflections. Jack's obsession was photography, specifically taking pictures of decaying urban structures. If given a chance, he would talk at great and exhausting length about the moral imperative of photographing ruins as we owed, quote-unquote, the original laborers and craftsmen some of our attention to the artistry of their hard work. Jack met Charlie in high school. Over the next few years, the pair developed their infiltration skills and expanded their group to encompass others with similar interests. Jack seemed to be the idea man and had an uncanny talent for finding unexplored sites all over the area. 
Once Jack had located a site, Charlie would come up with a way to get in. Not only was Charlie an expert locksmith, he had made friends with many of the librarians and city record keepers in the area, so he was often able to provide historical maps and records for the sites. We bounced along a poorly maintained road in Shane's van, listening to Jack crow about our target for the night. Shane did not appear to be a very smart person, given his size and usual closed-mouthedness. However, it was his idea to buy a white panel van and affix official-looking State Department of Infrastructure decals to it. He had mounted yellow bubble lights on the top and black and yellow caution tape around the bottom. When we stopped, he pulled a few orange traffic cones off of a metal mount on the front of the van and placed them in front and behind the van. Isn't that kind of conspicuous? I asked. Shane smiled. Yup, ain't no damn hooligan kids want to be conspicuous, so the van must be here on official business. Here it is, man. Jack clapped me on the back. Holy of holies, the waterworks tunnel. Half a mile straight through a mountain. And Charlie can get us in. I turned and looked at the small metal door set into the side of a hill. It doesn't look like much, and I didn't think it was that hard to get into. It's not, Charlie said, but we're going into the side tunnel. Charlie walked around to the rear of the van and pulled out a pickaxe. I would not have been more shocked if he had pulled out a severed head. As a rule, urbexers greatly disapprove of any action that changes a site. They don't litter, they don't graffiti, and on some message boards there are long-running arguments about even using chalk to mark for finding their way. What's the side tunnel? I asked. You'll see soon enough. Petya said, handing me a head-mounted flashlight. I grabbed my backpack, which was heavy with gear. Snacks, extra flashlights, water bottles. Jack grabbed a shovel from the back of the van, and Shane, another pickaxe. Moments later, the van was closed and locked, orange cones glowing in the dim light. Charlie produced an actual key to the lock on the metal door and hauled it open. He caught my look and said, Helps to have friends at City Hall. One by one, we walked single file through the door into the waterworks tunnel. Petya closed the metal door with a grunt, and the boom echoed through the darkness. The waterworks tunnel was more like every other tunnel, low, cramped, moist, with an unpleasant smell. Dirt caked the exposed brickwork, and in some places, iron piping lay exposed. Back like a hundred years ago, when the Dunn brothers built this thing, there wasn't a good way to get water from the Cahaba River into town, Jack said. So they bored this tunnel right through the mountain, out the other side to where the river is. The side tunnel, though? Please be quiet. Charlie said, I'm trying to count. We had been steadily making our way down the tunnel. The darkness before and behind was absolute. I had been in darker places, but the close confines were beginning to make me anxious. Jack moved away from Charlie, back to me. Anyway, like 
About halfway through the mountain, the Dunn brothers got to a spot that they couldn't get through. They had to bring in heavier machinery, some kind of steam drill rig. You see how tight it is in here, man? They dug a tunnel off to the side, then they expanded it. They were under a deadline, like nearly about to lose their contract, so they made the miners work day and night. They actually set up a small camp in the side tunnel. There were like sleeping areas with beds built right into the walls. They even had a small camp store. Eventually the miners got through the tough spot and the Dunn brothers just walled up the side tunnel. Nobody has been in here since. Jack's words echoed sibilantly down the tunnel. Nobody but us. Nobody until us, Shane laughed. It's bullshit, Petya said. There's no such thing as side tunnel. Is Jack being full of shits again, like with that room under the found downtown? Hey, that was real, Annie said. He couldn't get the... Please be quiet, guys, Charlie said playing his flashlight around on the floor inside the tunnel. Help me look for an iron valve or gear or something. We stopped talking and began looking around the tunnel. I followed the large iron pipe for a few feet and said, Hey, is this it? And Charlie shined his light on the valve, then on a folded back photocopy of his map. Yeah, that's it. Now, Shane... Try that wall right there, right across from here. See if it's brick behind that dirt. The pickaxe was incredibly loud in the tunnel. Good thing there's a mountain between us and anyone that might hear it, I said, holding my hands over my ears. Petya smirked and handed out ear covers from her backpack. Shane bashed the wall with the pickaxe a few more times, then scraped at it with the side of his axe. Yep, that's concrete over brick right there, Shane said, pulling a crumbling red brick loose with his pick. Jack eagerly grabbed the sledgehammer. He and I took up positions on either side of Shane, and we began to hammer away at small spots at the wall. Several minutes later, Jack's sledge punched through the wall a few feet further down the tunnel. I'm through, Jack yelled. Come help me. Shane and I moved near him, breaking the hundred-year-old brickwork. Annie made a few feeble attempts at moving bricks out of the way until Petya shoved her aside. You might break a nail, Petya growled, and began stacking the rubble into two careful piles on either side of the widening hole in the wall. Charlie donned gloves and helped, and soon we stood before a small hole that appeared to open into another larger chamber. Charlie handed Jack the large spotlight. After you, sir, Charlie said, bowing slightly and extending his arm toward the hole. Jack grinned, ducked into the hole, followed by Annie, Charlie, Shane, Petya, and finally, me. From the other side... The bricked-over section was much larger than the small opening we had made at nearly six yards across. There were a few wooden crates stacked on the sides of the tunnel covered by dirt and dust-covered 
tarpaulins. The tunnel was narrow at first, but seemed to widen at some distance away. Its walls receded into the gloom, out of the reach of the small, bright beam of light cast by Jack's spotlight. Jack moved the light around slowly, illuminating the side tunnel for the first time in over a hundred years. I'm going to pause real quick, take a drink, and then say the most profound thing I can at this moment. Which is, fuck all of this. I would not be caught dead burrowing into a closed-off space that you can get uh, trapped in, or lost in, or hurt in, with nobody outside having any idea where I am at the time. <laughs> this just sounds like a really bad idea. <laughs> and I also, like... I used to go geocaching, I used to urban explore and shit, I used to do it in Philly and in Napa, and I've seen a lot of and taken a lot of photos of a lot of different dilapidated places, so like, I've done the kind of more public side of what this kind of, you know, secret version is trying to attempt, but like, this just all, like, red flags, <laughs> red flag after fucking red flag, I can't begin to wrap my head around why people would do this without, like, telling anyone, or maybe, like, a backup plan, or just some type of, uh, I don't know, I don't necessarily know, I just, I, I wouldn't go into the tunnel, <laughs> is what I would do, I just wouldn't go in, I'd be like, okay guys, have fun, I'm going back to the van. <laughs> How big was this tunnel supposed to be? I asked. According to the map, maybe 30 feet wide, 200 feet long, Charlie said. It's a hell of a lot bigger than that, Shane said, staring off into the darkness. I think it gets a lot wider down there. Okay, guys, let's get what we came for, Jack said. Annie. Hand me my camera bag. We need to document this as we go through it, so we can have photos of the tunnel in its pristine state. As Jack set up his photography gear, we dispersed, each of us shining lights around the first part of the tunnel. I noted to myself that none of the group seemed particularly willing to go farther down the tunnel. <laughs> Jack began snapping photos, the flash flaring like lightning. Hey guys, look at this, Shane called from further down the tunnel. The light from his flashlight made him seem small in the darkness, and his voice echoed strangely. Charlie, Petya, and I walked down the tunnel to where Shane stood. This isn't supposed to be here, Charlie whispered. I had heard that line before. Hell, I've said it before. Suddenly, I was gripped with a panicky certainty that I should leave. Drop my pack, ditch these fools, run all the way to the doorway in the mountainside and open it and keep running. Maybe all the way to the ocean. I shuddered once, swallowed, and pushed it down. I had a job to do. <laughs> no, that is your conscience, that is your your gut telling you to GTFO, and you should absolutely listen to it. <laughs> uh, Shane was standing in front of the first building of what seemed to be an abandoned town. 
I counted over eight buildings on either side of smooth dirt, a quote-unquote street extending down the tunnel. The buildings were crudely finished with unpainted gray boards cracked and warped with age, but mostly whole. The cavern in which they stood was quite large, but the roof was low enough to see by flashlight. Jesus, Jack said, startling all of that. Quit that, asshole, Petya growled, punching Jack in the arm. You scared the shit out of me, standing here in scary tunnel with Ghost Town. She got closer to him with a finger in his face. You are full of shit again, Jack. You set this up to pull prank on this new guy, yes? Y'all knew this was down here? Jack backed up a step. Hey, man, back off. We had no idea this was down here. Are you serious? We had to break through a damn wall. How could we've known this place was even down here? Well, the news articles I found did say they built a camp for the miners, Charlie said. This whole area was sealed up until we knocked a hole in the wall, and it seems pretty dry down here, so the buildings were basically mummified. Petya rolled her eyes. Is exactly what we need. Mummy buildings. She slugged Jack on the arm again and stomped off. Yeah, a camp, Charlie, Shane said. This ain't a camp. This is a whole town. There's what, a dozen old buildings down there? I want to get out of here, Jack. Take me back to the van, Annie said and leaned on Jack in such a way to press many exciting parts against him. Petya rolled her eyes. We're not going back now, Annie. We just got here. If Jack is right, we're first. We're never first at anything. That seemed to steal Jack's resolve. She's right, Annie. This is the type of thing that lands me a National Geographic deal. Charlie glanced at Jack. Us, Jack. All of us. Of course, man, we'll all be famous. Let's get a shot of that building there, Jack said with the distracted look that indicated he was no longer thinking about the current conversation. Annie and Shane cautiously investigated the shack on the opposite side of the tunnel. Petty and I walked down the tunnel, past the first few buildings to a larger clearing. The center of the clearing held a large stack of ancient, mostly burned wood in a circular fire pit. A few rusted metal cans lay scattered around the pit. To the left and the right of the fire pit, tunnels extended and disappeared into darkness. I had done my research for months, looking in the basements of dusty college libraries and used bookscore used bookstores, scouring thrift stores, yard sales, and once I got to Birmingham reading the papers looking for reports of the missing. I had more doubts than clues, with only the scars upon my face as evidence that the thing that I sought was real, and not a paranoid fantasy of my own making. I knew I was in the right place when I saw what lay in front of us. At the end of the side tunnel, carved into the raw rock wall like some hillbilly Petra rose the face of a large building that could only be a church. The carvings had a crude look to them, 
columns and lintels hammered out of the stone with miners' chisels by men who might have seen a drawing of a Roman column in a newsprint. Crosses decorated the facing at various points, but my eyes were immediately drawn to the symbol above the only door. I recognized the symbol's loops and angles, but only in reverse, as I had only seen it in one other place. My own mirror, as a faint white tracery only visible now under the bright glare of the light reflecting off the scarred skin of my forehead. At that moment of recognition, as if in sympathy, my scars began to itch. Faintly, but the itch was there. A subtle warning. Get out. I knew I should listen, but it had taken so long to catch the faintest trace of the trail. Okay, so I'm just going to go back for a second. This guy goes down into a fucking hole in the ground, into a goddamn tunnel, to see the same symbol of what looks like the scar on his head and says, nope, I'm fine, I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. <laughs> What? <laughs> Why? Uh, okay. Hey, look. A cave. I wonder what's inside, Peya said with a knowing smirk. She shouldered her pack and walked into the doorway. I had no choice but to follow her. The doorway opened into a small, low tunnel carved out of solid rock, and after a few feet, the tunnel turned sharply left and turned again to the right, then opened into a larger room with a downward-sloping floor. The remnants of wooden pews sat rotting silently on either side of the narrow aisle leading down to the front of the room. At the front of the room, a few large leather sacks leaned against a round structure that appeared to be an altar. As we moved closer, Petya let out a stifled squeak and stopped. She glanced at me, but I already knew. The leather sacks were, in fact, the desiccated remains of three people, hunched, headless, and kneeling at the altar. I stepped closer what I had originally thought of as an altar was in fact a pit or a deep well, its bottom hidden far below. Bodies, Petya said. A sidelong glance at her face showed me the shocked, bruised look about her eyes. She grimaced, then shouldered her pack. Jack will not be happy about this. Urbexers hate finding bodies, just like I imagine like anyone fucking else. <laughs> At the least, bodies are creepy and unpleasant. At the worst, they can entangle a crew in months of police investigations, red tape, and possible trespassing charges. Let's try to steer Jack away from this for now, I said. In fact, let's head back. 
Petra nodded, and we left the church, Petya glancing over her shoulder at the well. When we arrived back at the clearing, Jack was missing. Annie was furious, eyes rubbed red and raw, upbraiding Charlie and Shane. That's rule number one, Shane. Stick with your buddy. You guys act like I'm, I'm just eye candy. Treat me like I'm Jack's Barbie doll who can't do anything. But I've been on more crawls than either of you two in the last year. Where were you, Shane? What were you doing? Shane stared at the ground, scuffing the dirt floor of the tunnel with his work boots. We... we we're just... We were making out, Charlie said. It happens. Annie whirled on Charlie. Oh, for Christ's sake, Charlie, couldn't you have kept it in your pants for an hour? You both have jobs to do. The same goes for you, Annie. Where were you? What were you doing? You've been stuck up Jack's ass all night, so we figured he'd be fine, Charlie said. In the glow of the flashlights, Charlie glanced at Petya and I and blushed. Look, this isn't helping. We need to find Jack. He couldn't have gotten far. He's probably down the tunnel, taking pictures. He, you know how he gets when he finds a good subject. We spread out. Annie ran to the entrance, but saw no sign of Jack. I checked a few of the wooden structures, but found nothing. When we reached the end of the side tunnel in front of the church, Charlie wanted to check inside. Uh, Petya and I just came from inside there, I said. I glanced at Petya, who shook her head. She knew as well as I that the revelation of three mummified corpses in the church would send the rest of the crew into a panic. If you want, I'll run in and check. Um, go look in the other buildings. I'll be right back. Uh, I'm just going to pause real quick. Is Charlie a chick? Because I know, like, that could be like an, like a, like a unisex name. I didn't take big old Burly Shane as, as a homosexual, not that there's like a problem with that, but like, I'm confused about the gender identities of all of these people. <laughs> um, even if they are gay, like good for them. That's a cool couple. Little, little nerdy Shane, or little nerdy Charlie and big old Shane. Charlie rounded up the others and walked down the tunnel to the right, calling Jack's name as he went, as they went so still no pronouns to help at all. I turned and walked back into the church. As I followed the tunnel's turns, I noticed light shining from the room, dreading what I would find. I walked into the small room and found it as Petya and I had left it, empty, save for the three mummified bodies clustered around the well and Jack's large spotlight positioned at the top of the well. Well, shit, Shane said in that particularly southern way that splits a single-syllable word into seven or more syllables. Well, shit. <laughs> he peered into the well, but his flashlight was unable to pierce the gloom at the bottom. Looks like Jack is exploring without us, I said. We should probably go down after him. Um, excuse me? <laughs> Big old excuse me? <laughs> I ain't going down fucking Mordor. <laughs> fucking Peregrine Took. Oh, I don't think that's a good idea, man, Charlie said. Oh, he was visibly shaken. They're gay. <laughs> the whole group was. The three 
headless, mummified corpses squatting near the well did not help ease the tension in the room, and the group was decidedly angry at Petya and I for not mentioning them. <laughs> You're going in there after him, Charlie, Annie said. You owe it to him. And if you're too pussy to go in, I'll go. We all go, Petya said. I have seen the scary movies. We don't split up. Splitting up is when monsters get us. She shoved Shane out of the way, adjusting her headlamp, and began the descent. The descent! Annie followed, then Shane, and then Charlie. I climbed down the well shaft after the others, leaving the strange church in near darkness, illuminated only by the cold green glow of a few long-duration chem lights left at the top of the well. I had been lost in the dark before, and a little extra light can make all the difference. Um, has no one asked the fucking question of what if the fucking rope doesn't get you back up, or uh, if you're fucking stuck down there or some shit? Um, pet you, you're a fucking idiot. At these specific junctures, you definitely split up so that not everyone dies. <laughs> the tunnel at the bottom of the well smelled like blood. The others noticed it, and Charlie began some tentative explanation about the amount of iron ore in the walls, but then trailed off. They could sense the wrongness of this place. Under the pervasive smell of rust and blood, there was another, fouler stink. It was not so much a scent, but the memory of a scent, a recollection of the odor of something horrible that once passed this way, and might yet come again. An eldritch abomination. <laughs> that's me, that's me choking. When we reached the first intersection, what, there's fucking more tunnels down here? I thought it was a fucking well. When we reached the first intersection, Charlie asked us to stop. He fished in his backpack and pulled out a can of highly reflective spray paint. Charlie, Shane said, Urbexers don't leave traces. Worst case, they use chalk because it washes away with water. They don't spray paint anything. Fuck this place, man. Charlie popped the top, shook the can, and sprayed the large arrow on the tunnel wall, pointing back to the well. Fuck it in the ear. Petya started us all with her cackled laughter. In ear, good one, Charlie. That set the rest of the group off and for a time eased the growing fear. We turned to the right and followed the new tunnel, periodically calling for Jack. The tunnel forked, split, and forked again. There's miles of tunnels down here, Shane said. How are we going to find Jack in all of this? He's not leaving any markers, and the floor's too hard to see his footprints. We'll find him, Charlie said. These tunnels have to go somewhere. What I'd like to know is why they're here. At first I thought this was a coal mine, but there's no bracing like I expected, so I thought maybe it was a saltpeter mine. That would at least explain the lack of bracing and the crazy tunnels, but I, I haven't seen niter on any of these walls. None of this makes any sense. Annie, who had been quiet for a while, stopped. Guys, I saw someone up ahead. Jack, she yelled and ran forward. We followed. Running in a stooped half run so as not to hit our heads on the low tunnel ceilings, Annie called for Jack as she ran, gradually outdistancing us with her frantic pace. Up ahead in the gloom, we saw her pause, turn her head to the left, 
then lunge down a tunnel branch. Annie, slow down, Shane yelled, even though the air was cool in the tunnels. Sweat beaded his face. We heard a thin shriek and then sobs. Annie, Shane yelled again. We found Annie sitting on the floor of a room, the first of its size that we had encountered. The floor was hard-packed earth like the rest of the tunnels, but there were a few old wooden boards scattered around it. Her pack was open in front of her, and she was muttering a quiet stream of obscenities. She had removed a boot and was wrapping her foot in gauze from a first aid kit. Sorry, guys. I, I tripped over a damn board. I guess I was going too fast and didn't watch where I was going. Shane and Charlie hurried over to her, clucking like upset hens. Charlie pronounced Annie's ankle sprain. I guess we should take a rest break, Shane said. What time is it? About three in the morning, Charlie said, looking at his watch. Feels like we've been down here for hours. We should go back, Petya said. Annie shook her head firmly. No, I'm not leaving without Jack. Look, Annie, I know you thought you saw him, Shane said. But we don't even know if he's down here, Charlie said. Yes, he is. We saw his spotlight at the top of the well, Annie said. I know, but that's just it, Charlie said, taking a bite of a protein bar. Jack's a pro. He wouldn't come down here without us. I've been thinking, what if we have it wrong? What if he left the spotlight behind while he went to find us and we somehow missed him? Oh my god, Annie said. I bet he's terrified. Someone needs to go back, leave a note or something. And as she tried to climb to her feet, her ankle turned and Shane and Charlie both caught her. You're definitely done exploring, Shane said. Okay. I will take Annie back to the van. We'll leave notes for Jack along the way. And Charlie? Shane looked down. I think it's time to call the cops. Charlie blew out a compressed breath. Jack is gonna be pissed. Yeah, he will. But he shouldn't have run off like this. And there's bodies down here. And we have an injury. You want to keep going on these field trips? We better play by the rules. Give us three more hours, Shane, I said. If we can't find Jack by dawn, no problem. We'll pack up and head to the entrance. We'll call the cops. But I think we'll find him before then. And call Roberto, Charlie said. Shane tightened his jaw. Roberto was Shane's ex, and they had a bad breakup, but Roberto was a long-term detective on the city's police force and could smooth things over for the group. I know you're still pissed at him, but we need his help. Shane helped Annie up and she leaned on him as they staggered out of the room. I could tell from the set of Shane's jaw that he was pissed, but I knew Annie would make him call the cops. So, I had three hours, maybe less. I had hoped it would be enough time. I knew I might be able to break back into the side tunnel in another month or so, but my guess was that the site was about to become very popular with a lot of different people. I clenched my fists. I was very close. 
closer than I had really ever been. I was not about to let this opportunity slip away. Okay, another another quick pause. The narrator 100% has some ulterior motive here. Like I said, some Shutter Island shit that just isn't being brought to the surface. Um, I don't like that. I don't like unreliable narrators. I don't like when we're kind of put in a corner like this and we don't have any contextual answers, you know? And now the group is, like, split. Like, it's really fucking split. And, um, it's probably just gonna get worse. I stood up, dusted off my jeans, and gathered the few items I had pulled from my pack. Time to find Jack. There's a lot of branching tunnels down here, so remember to mark them, Charlie. I think we missed a few when we were running after Annie. I turned to pet you. You're the best mapper we have. Do you have any idea of where we are? Yes, Petya said. We're about half a kilometer from the well, in pretty much straight line from there. Plenty of places for Jack to be. I say we do maze logic. Pick right-hand wall, follow it until it ends or loops back. We go for 90 minutes. If no Jack, we head back to well. Surely we'll find him before then, Charlie said. It's after three in the morning. He has to be tired. There couldn't possibly be anything that interesting. Charlie stopped, turned his head. Then I heard the screams. Mentally, I was prepared for this. I knew that I had made a conscious decision to lead these kids into a trap and to use them as bait. Wiggity wiggity what? <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't like this anymore. I rationalized that by putting a few people at risk, I would be ultimately protecting many more. I knew that was just rationalization. In truth, I didn't feel guilty about putting my friends in danger. I felt guilty about not caring about them at all, when endangering them put me closer to my goal. Annie, Charlie yelled, and we ran out of the room, down a tunnel toward the sound of her voice. I saw her first, lurching against the tunnel wall, dragging her injured foot, eyes deep-socketed and huge in the bleached white mask of her face. Her shirt was splattered with a spray of blood. Shane, she said. It got Shane. What got Shane? Petya asked. I... I, I don't know. We were close to the well, Shane kept saying. He heard something walking behind us, but when we looked, there was nothing there, so we kept walking, and then... Then there was something there, and... It, it took him. Her face crumpled in grief. It just pulled him right out of my hands. I, I don't, I don't know if he knew what happened. His, his face. He just, he looked so confused. Petya took Annie's hand, and Annie clung to her, sobbing. I knew with the pack on the tunnel floor. 
I knelt with my pack on the tunnel floor and rummaged through it. When Charlie saw the gun, he stepped back a pace. Jesus, fuck, what the hell is that thing? It's a shotgun revolver, six chambers, all loaded. If you have to use it, be really careful. It's got no safety to speak of. The gun scared the shit out of me. It was huge, making Dirty Harry's Magnum look like a squirt gun. It was heavy, unwieldy, and hurt like a bastard to fire, but it was shorter than a shotgun and took shot shells, which was useful as I had hand-loaded every shell. I had no idea what might kill or even hurt the thing I hunted, but I had my hopes. Buckshot, mixed with either rock salt, silver shot, gold shot, mercury, garlic, or finally communion wafers and holy water. If that didn't work, I had some hollow point solid rounds that I could use on myself if it came to it. I pulled out two long hunting knives that I had hand silvered. Why would I have to use it? Charlie asked, pushing his glasses up and blinking rapidly. In case the thing down here with us gets me before it gets you. I handed the two knives to Charlie and Petya. Careful with those two. They're sharp. I electroplated them myself. Will they work? Petya asked. I have no idea, I said. I picked most of this stuff up by watching Supernatural reruns. I'm making the rest up as I go along. We are so fucked, Petya said and shook her head. I'm going to drink to that real quick. red flags and bad decisions I think they'll work worst case it'll drive the thing off for long enough that we can get away Annie who had been very quiet who had been very quiet looked up at me you knew she lunged forward and punched me hard in the side of the face I fell back cracked my head on the tunnel wall you knew you knew something was down here you bastard you let us all down here as Bait, Petya said and sighed. She stood up from her near crouch and eyed me with contempt. I got up, rubbing my throbbing head. Look, I've been hunting this thing for a long time. It's killed people, and, and it's my fault. I let it out, so it's my responsibility to take it down. And you're the one with the gun, Charlie said. Right. I'm the best chance any of you have of living through this. And I think that if there's anyone with a chance of hurting this thing, it's me. I stood and put the gun into a holster and put two moon clips into each of my jacket pockets. I shouldered my pack. Let's go. Annie, take us back to where it got Shane. Everyone stay behind me. I pulled out the gun again and we started walking back down the tunnel toward the well. The trek back was far worse. Charlie's markers glittered like cat's eyes in the distant gloom, and we all kept seeing shadows at the corners of our vision. Twice I nearly wasted ammo on a slight imperfection in the tunnel wall, 
The weight and bulk of the shotgun pistol made it extremely uncomfortable to carry for any length of time, so I eventually settled for keeping it holstered, pulling it out any time I thought I saw something. We could see the handholds of the well when we reached the area where Shane was taken. There was a great deal of blood splashed on the wall, and more trailed off down a tunnel that forked off from the main one. There's the well, I said. You three take the knives, climb up, and get out of here. Call for help. I'm going after the thing that got Shane. I'm not leaving without Jack, Petya said. She looked at Annie, then looked away. I remembered the way Petya looked at Jack when she thought nobody was looking. Fair enough. I think we all know Jack's not, um... Jack didn't make it, Charlie said, wiping his eyes. But I'm not going without Shane, or at least finding out what happened to him. He turned away, weeping silently. We're coming with you, Annie said. I'm not leaving without Jack either, or at least without knowing what happened to him. And like Petya said, we don't split up. You saw what happened to me and Shane when we went off on our own. I looked at all the blood on the ground. Nobody knows we're down here. They might find the van, but they won't find the entrance to the side tunnel. I've been in this type of situation before. Things change when the cops show up. There will be a cave-in or a flood, or the cops will walk all the length of the waterworks tunnel and they simply won't see the hole we made because they can't or because they really don't want to. If you follow me, I am probably not going to survive this, so you won't either. Annie took a closer step to me and shook a fist in my face. You can get off your white knight hero horse now, asshole. She grabbed my collar and began to punctuate her sentences by shaking my head. Find my boyfriend now. I stepped back against the wall and pushed her away. Fine. So be it. We followed the spatters and smears of blood down a long tunnel that snaked and twisted and sloped downward, gently at first, then more steeply. My scars had been itching faintly since I climbed down the well, but the itching had increased to a shrill, insistent whine against the nerve endings of my skin. I could feel the looping scrawl of each scar, so faint as to the invisible in daylight, etched into my face as if it held in place by a net of white-hot wires. The air in the tunnel began to thicken with moisture, the walls shining wetly in the reflected beams of our lights. I stopped, holding up a hand to warn the others. I see light from up ahead, I whispered. Somewhere down the tunnel, a pale golden light flickered. I pulled the revolver from its holster, cursing its weight for the hundredth time. We continued down the corridor cautiously and slowly, partly due to fear and partly due to the floor, which was very steep and thick with moisture. 
The tunnel ended abruptly at a thin ledge that bordered a space wide and open and chaotic with shapes. At first I could not make sense of what I saw, the lines and forms overlapping and merging like looking skyward at the moon through an ancient tree. We all stood on that ledge for a moment, gasping and maybe making some small sounds as our minds fought to process that view. Gradually, my eyes traced the subtle lines and edges of structures clustered against the wall in claustrophobic clots and knots like a type of architectural tumor. The walls of the cavern receded out and away, plunging down into mist-shrouded depths, fading from my view. The structures were lit from indeterminate light sources, limed in a dim gold light that did more to cast shadow than to reveal. As I stared, I began to notice the crumpled ledges, the blank and open entryways, the empty areas on distant walls where whole sections of the buildings had sloughed off and fallen into the pit far below. I noticed the stillness, the silence of the place. It's a city, Charlie said. A dead city, I said. How can it be a city, Annie said. There's no streets. Those doors open out onto thin air that makes no sense. It makes perfect sense if you have wings, I said, gesturing at a brighter area down the ledge to our right. That's where we're going. The ledge was smooth, its surface glassy but not slick. It seemed to emit a faint gold light that was only visible from the corner of my vision. We crept down the ledge for a few hundred yards, reaching a wide platform against one low wall was a large seat of sorts, and in front of that seat was a long, rounded, metallic table. Shane's corpse glistened wetly on the table, chest cracked open, ribs splayed wide like two open skeletal hands. The top of his skull had been removed, and a mass of black tubes snaked from the opening down the table. No! Charlie wailed and ran to the table. Charlie, don't! I yelled. Charlie reached the table and stopped. He reached out an arm and I gently touched. He reached out an arm and gently touched Shane's bloody face. Shane's eyes snapped open. I could see his lungs flutter in the raw cavity of his chest. His mouth worked silently, lips pulled back into a rictus grin, tongue thrusting against his teeth. His body began to twitch and spasm, then the black tubes penetrating his skull writhed and pulled taut, and the spasms ceased. Shane's eyes rolled up in his sockets, and his eyelids closed, almost peacefully. Charlie whirled to face me, face contorted with rage and grief, silvered her 
silvered hunting knife held in a murderous grip in his hand. What did this? What the fuck did this to him? As if in answer, the thing hit him so fast it was a blur. Charlie let out a brief scream as he was hooked high up into the air, then screamed again in rage. I saw Charlie plunge the knife deep into the thing's abdomen, pull it out, and plunge it again. The thing let out an ear-splitting shriek and let Charlie go. Annie, Petya, and I watched as Charlie fell, tumbling over and over into the depths. The thing crashed to the floor and skidded to a stop against the cavern wall. Shoot it, Annie yelled. Kill it now! The creature stood as I raised the gun with two shaking hands. The thing was huge, standing over twelve feet high. It took a staggering step forward on curiously back-bent legs, then another. It shuddered, and I could see a milky, iridescent fluid seeping out of a wound on its belly, its head snapped up and forward, and its eyes. There were so many, focused on me. I felt a disorienting tilt in my perspective, as if I were seeing myself, and the room, and Petya, and Annie, and the creature, all at once. I felt a curiously mechanical ticking, and felt that the size of the thing was a mistake. It was much, much larger than it appeared. The creature spread its wings two or four or six, feathered and broad and black and leathery, tipped with hooks and talons and flapped them once. Its scent billowed over us all. The scent we smelled in the tunnels, acrid and dry like oranges rotting in the desert sun. It came closer to us, and I felt it outside my mind, a pressure that was immense and cold and horribly inhumanly logical. I waited, even though I could still hear Annie and Petya screaming behind me, screaming for me to shoot the thing. My scars were now twisting and rippling on my skin, white hot and reaching a point so far beyond pain that I could not name it. I focused on that sensation and I steadied my aim. The gunshot thundered deafeningly loud in the silence of the dead city. The shotgun revolver kicked viciously in my fist and I nearly dropped it. The creature had closed nearly half the distance between us. It stopped and some of its eyes seemed to blink. One of its wings seemed to droop and I saw that my first round of rock salt and buckshot had punched a small ragged hole through its leathery membrane. I braced and fired again, and the creature recoiled with a scream as the silver shot ripped open a jagged swath across its chest, and I fired again and was rewarded with another scream. It was so close that its stink was suffocating. I fired again and again. The thing was reaching out for me with so many arms, its wings fluttering so fast they were a, bl they were a blur. Then it had me. 
two of its arms clutched me around the waist and pulled me up and close. Two more arms reached up with taloned hands, black and scaly, crusted with impossible jewelry, and clasped both sides of my face. It turned my head from side to side, almost gently, and then looked deeply into my eyes. Of the many things I saw in those huge, golden orbs with their rings within whirling and spinning rings, the worst was recognition. The pressure outside my mind intensified, and I felt a snap, like a green stick fracture from a short, sharp fall, and it came flooding through. It spoke to me then, not in words, but in a purer, older style of communication. It thanked me for bringing it more meals, and thanked me even more for bringing it information about the world from which it had been away for so very long. It promised that I was its favorite, and I would be rewarded in some incomprehensible, impossible way. I felt a deep and loathsome love welling up in me for the thing, as a dog would unconditionally love its master. Then the creature screamed, shrieking in real pain, and it was gone from my mind. I felt it recede like a tide and missed that presence, hating myself for feeling so. I fell to the ground in a heap as the creature stepped back, arms raised to its head. Petya had leapt upon the creature's back and was stabbing her long, silvered knife deep into the creature's eyes. The thing scrabbled its many-taloned hands at her, leaving deep scratches on her arms, but she dodged and kept plunging the knife into the thing's eyes, and finally, with a deep, guttural bellow, she slammed the knife with both fists deep into the center of the creature's skull. The wings stopped fluttering, and the thing toppled forward to the floor. Petya untangled herself from the thing's bulk and half stumbled to where I was sitting. Her face was ashen, and she held one arm with the other, blood oozing from long scratches on both. Annie shook herself and ran to Petya, dropping her backpack and pulled out the first aid kit. Neither of them looked at Shane. Once Annie had bound the worst of Petya's wounds, Petya stood up and walked over to the still form of the fallen creature. She kicked it savagely once in the head and stopped to remove the knife. Leave it, I said. She turned to look at me. I think it's better off where it is. It's dead. I killed it, she said. For now but it might not be later, and that knife might postpone later for now, for long enough. It's time to go. Annie gestured at Shane's body. What about him? We can't leave him here. I know we can't, I said, but none of us have the strength to carry him out, and we don't know if that thing is going to wake back up or if there's more of them. And that seemed to motivate Annie and Petya. 
Annie packed up her first aid kit and we left the dead city by way of the tunnel from which we entered. I thought I saw the dim golden light growing fainter as we left, and that made me feel a slight bit of hope. The walk back to the well was long, far longer than I remembered. The lower tunnel floors were sloped upwards and slick, and Annie and I both fell at least twice, which did nothing to improve my headache or Annie's sprained ankle. Petya had lost a shoe in the fight and had kicked off the other one before leaving the cavern. I thought about that shoe a lot while walking out of those tunnels. I wondered what some future explorer would think upon discovering that platform in a dead city of angels, and on that platform, the creature's corpse and a single shoe. When we reached the well, I realized something had changed. I could see light at the top, much brighter than the few chem lights I'd left behind. Annie saw the light and began to shout for help. A familiar voice sounded down the well from the top, and a silhouette of a head blocked the light. Annie? What are you doing down there? Jack yelled. And after much hugging and crying and kissing and a fair amount of punching, we got out of the wall and back to the entrance of the side tunnel. Petya was unable to climb due to her injured arm, so Jack and I helped her get out of the well using a Swiss seat he fashioned out of a repelling rope. Annie was able to climb out of the well on her own, putting minimal weight on her injured foot. According to Jack, he left his spotlight at the edge of the well as a light source for some incredibly amazing photographs. Midway through, the cheap Zeiss lens somehow fell off his camera, shattered on the stone floor. In a panic, he ran to the tunnel entrance to find a replacement, only to realize that he had left his case of spares back at the van. Thinking he wouldn't be long, he ducked out of the waterworks tunnel and ran back to the van. Yeah, man, Jack said. This was totally stupid, guys. It was dark, and I was in a hurry to get back, so, like, I... I got my spare case and then shut the back doors and locked the van and, like, ran around the side of the van. You know those big mirrors on that thing that stick out, like, three feet on either side? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I clocked myself big time on one. I think I tore it off the mount. Anyway, that, like, knocked me totally unconscious. I woke up maybe a half hour ago with a killer headache. My face was all bloody and it was light outside and I didn't know what the hell was going on. I got my shit together and came back down here but couldn't find you guys. It's spooky as shit down here when you're alone. I was about to freak out until I heard some noises coming from the well and then I was really gonna freak out. He paused to take a breath and a sip of water from a bottle. Man, Shane's gonna be pissed when he sees what I did to the van. <laughs> hey, uh, where is Shane? Where's Charlie? Jack wanted to go back immediately. Neither Annie or Petya would allow it. He swore he was going to get a group of people together to find Shane and Charlie, or at least their bodies. He said he would call in every favor he was owed, do whatever it took. His first call would be to Shane's brothers, both of whom were even larger than Shane, and both of whom owned enough firepower to take over a small country. I agreed and promised to help, but I was already planning to slip away as soon as I could. Jack's search party might find the side tunnel, but the entrance would be collapsed. 
or the tunnel would be there and even the buildings inside, but the well would be full of dirt or simply missing. No amount of drilling or explosives or explosives or ground penetrating radar would ever uncover that dead city. Annie and Petya both hugged me, to my surprise, as we stood in the parking lot across from Jack's apartment. I shook Jack's hand and promised to call him after I got some rest. I put my gear into the trunk of my old battered blue Toyota Corolla, and as I was driving away, Annie embraced Jack again. His eyes caught mine over her shoulder. Then one lid drooped in a slow, lurid wink. And in that moment, in the late morning light, the other eye flashed gold, like gold rings spinning inside gold rings. Then it was gone. It could have just been a trick of the light. Wow. What a killer fucking story. That story, um, that story reminded me of like a shorter kind of, it, it really did remind me of like a supernatural episode at the end of the day, a little bit of the descent, a little bit Lovecraft. Um, what was the, what was the story I read with Dr. Ankenstein? The one about the, um, the sewers in, in Ireland, um, the, the Kelpie, the, the big old, big old monster horse thing. <laughs> mm. Very similar vibes like sewers and tunnels and monsters and shit. Um, and I love that. I live for that. I love creature features. I love, uh, the prospect of, um, engineering a monster in today's like world. Cause there's, there's so many things that have changed about like fear and scariness and horror. You know, um, I don't think people are quite as afraid of like slashers and hackers and, and type of shit anymore. The torture porn type of genre anymore, like saw and scream and, you know, Halloween and all of them kind of did their due, but every once in a while you get something kind of like, like the ritual, like this reminded me of the ritual a bit where, um, you know, you just have a, a solid kind of stereotypical group just lost somewhere and they meet a force to be reckoned with. And it's usually godlike, you know, in its, in its monstrous nature and, um, there's something really fucking cool about that. And I, I really, um, I really dug the, the approach cause I, I know about halfway through, I said, I really don't like unreliable narrators, but the guy kind of played his cards really quickly. He very quickly, like after I said that said, like, I brought these people down here as bait. I'm hunting a monster. This is just what I'm doing right now. Um, but there really was no further context to that, so that could have been lengthened a little bit. Like, this was a very quick story. There was a lot of um, restraint with how the author wrote this. But 
I can appreciate restraint. I don't have too many questions. You know, the ending felt very, like, Annihilation to me. Like, um, you know, that kind of wry wink-wink to the camera that things aren't the same as they were in the beginning. Um, which we were already, like, aware of. Like, it, if you were to ask me if Jack's story was plausible in literally any fucking way, I would have I would have said bullshit, like, on the spot, you know? If, um... If there's any way to test that, you know, maybe open up one of his, like, uh, rock salt buck shots with silver and, and holy water and shit and just kind of, like, toss it at him, <laughs> you know, cut it open and kind of, like, sprinkle it on his head real quick and see if he fucking burns. <laughs> I don't know. There's, there's no real, um, there's no real test to be done at that moment in time. Like, the sun was already up, so I'd... I don't necessarily think this thing was a vampire or like an eldritch god. He used the term angel, which I find incredibly interesting. Um, but this thing was like feeding on Shane's organs and shit. So I don't necessarily know what's like old school biblical about any of that. Cause, uh, yeah, I don't remember, you know, the book of Genesis explaining that angels fed on people, you know, it just, God might have missed that part when he described it to any of the, uh, the authors of the Bible. So I, I'm leaning towards like, um, towards vampire, like old school vampire type of monster, like Lovecraftian, like, you know. It's it's hard to say like Eldritch God because it, it got stabbed in the head and died. Like there's there's something very shoggoth about it with, with the eyes and the wings. Um you can tell this person has read at the uh at the Mountains of Madness because the way they describe the dead city is very similar, like, you know, uh inhumanly not man-made, you know, kind of structures, only explaining them in the logic of a being beyond human, um, the kind of madness that comes from looking at something like that, um, the way they kind of dissect humans, that happens in, in Mountains of Madness as well, so we'll, we'll have to read Mountains of Madness on this show at some point, because I keep... I keep bringing it up. I just think it's such a long story and it really doesn't, um, because it was written in like the fucking early 1900s. I want to say like somewhere around like 1920 to 1930. It was, it was like in a magazine. Um, it really doesn't, uh, it really doesn't carry over to today's like mainframe infrastructure of how fiction or like horror fiction is really written nowadays. There's a lot of, there's a lot of information and a lot of suspense, um, with very little payoff. Like even, even the ending of the story is just a cliffhanger about the psychology of mankind. So it's, it, it's something I reference a lot. It's something I want to read. I don't know if we're ever going to get there. Part of me doesn't want to give Lovecraft, like, the person any kind of, like, huge shout-out because he was a piece-of-shit type of person. He was very racist, very misogynistic. Um, but there's no... 
I try to distance myself from judging the person and judging like their talent. Um, I try to let that kind of subjective opinion uh, squeak in on the objective opinions from time to time. Um, so maybe that will be something we read um, somewhere going from 250 to 300, or, or maybe I'll read it even sooner if I find the right person to read it with. Um, I don't know. Um, it, it, that feels like something I might read by myself. Um, depends on if I find the right person who would be interested to read it, who maybe has never read it before and, and wants to know where, like, a lot of these bigger, you know, more popular things nowadays come from and where their inspiration comes from, like, uh, like Alien and The Thing, um, you know, a lot of popular UFO trope heavy fiction X-Files and stuff, uh, comes from mountains of madness so um this story was good i i always kind of uh trail on a little too long when i talk about my review for things this was um very well written it was interesting it was fun it was short it was to the point um i'm gonna give it an a for effort and uh not much else so i hope everyone else enjoyed this um, go ahead and leave comments, likes, subscribes, follows, whatever that bullshit, um, or don't, and, you know, just have this be the only episode you listen to, and never fucking listen to another one ever again, that's, that's your decision, I leave that up to you, um, we are about to begin a new series, I know I just finished the last series with Where Am I?, we're now bouncing into a new series with Cannibal Siren that will be coming out next week. So I hope everyone is really excited for that, because I am. That shit is going to be so awesome to listen to. I'm very excited for um, what Cannibal Siren and I have to bring to the table uh, starting next week. And the, the like bi-weekly episodes that come out, because it's, it's every other so we'll break up the monotony of that story with smaller individual stories, but that big series coming out next uh, over those four episodes are really going to be something cool. So I hope everyone enjoyed this kind of lax, you know, cathartic kind of private episode with me, your Captain Death, here today on Lots of Pasta. And, um... I'll see you fuckers later. I'll wait till the day's end when the moon is high. A little rise with the tide with the lust for life. I'll, I'll mess an army, I won't run as a whore. And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore. I'll wait till the day's end when the moon is high. And then I'll rise with the tide with the lust for life. I'll, I'll mess an army, I won't run as a whore. And then we'll look across the land until we stand at the shore.